Good morning. Uh, for scripture reading today, we will be in Genesis 37, 1 through 28. Genesis 37, 1 through 28. If you're new to the Bible, start at the beginning and just uh, go a little bit right. You'll be there. Also, it's, I love that song. Uh, that second verse talks pretty much about all of the, uh, of the book of Genesis, that God is uh, not shocked, that kingdoms will rise and fall, um, but he is uh, king of kings and lord of lords. So let's read uh, 37, 1 through 28. Um, Andrew is going through basically the book of Genesis, so buckle up. Uh, 37, 1 through 28. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourners in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, boo, because he was the, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his father saw that their father, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father, and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. 
Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Thank you, Aaron. And uh, thank you for Tim. I guess I'm a guest speaker. So my name is Andrew Meisner. I live in Sussex, Wisconsin. I was privileged to bring my wife and four kids with me today. I would call them wonderful, but I think they all forgot that it's Father's Day. But that's, that's okay. But anyways, happy Father's Day to all of you fathers. Um, and that's about all I have to say about that. Um, let's pray as we begin our time together in, in God's Word. God, our Father, creator of all things, true source of light and wisdom, origin of all that is, thank you for calling me to faith, for planting your word in my heart, and for delivering me from my sin. Thank you for calling me to your service, for giving me the ability to teach your word and share this good news with others. I am overwhelmed at the thought of teaching on the gospel. I feel so inadequate to deliver something of value about something that is so priceless. I am unworthy to be given the privilege of thinking deeply about news too marvelous for angels to comprehend. Be ever gracious to me. Let a, lay of, a ray of your light penetrate the darkness of my understanding. Give me confidence in the power of the gospel. Grant me clarity and understanding in proclaiming the truths of your word. Edify your church through this work. May your name be glorified today. To start, I'm going to need a little bit of audience participation. In a moment, I'll have James uh, put a, uh, just a few pictures up on the, on the screen behind me. And when I do, uh, I want you to vote what is either good or bad. You all got that? Good, bad. James, first picture. Okay, good. All right. Next picture. Okay. Next one. Ooh, there's there's a Rick. Sorry, this does not count. <laughs> so either good or bad. And the last picture. Okay. Thanks, James. Now, you're probably wondering what in the world are we doing with voting what's good or bad about some pictures. But um, as you voted on these items. What factors did you use to in your decision-making process with if something was good or bad? Now, with baking, you probably thought, that tastes good. 
But some other of you might have thought, well, is it good for me? So your vote might have been down. Um, if, you, if you're if talking about a sports team, you can use a, a win-loss record to determine if a, term is actually, a team is actually good, but in reality, most sports fans don't think that way. They root for the team that is theirs, whether they're good or bad, which is the case for most Bears fans. They just root for them anyways. Um, so it would appear that the word good or bad and, and, and deciding which is which is a rather subjective thing, isn't it? It is all up to the preferences and opinions of the individual. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, is it not? So is there a standard for what is good? Yes, there most definitely is. We often say the, the saying, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. But what are we saying when we declare that truth? Um, as Wayne Grudem states, God is the final standard of good. And all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Because we are mere creatures, we are not free to decide by ourselves what is worthy of approval and what is not. Ultimately, therefore, God's being and actions are perfectly worthy of his own approval. He is, therefore, the final standard of good. Now, there is, there is a plethora of Scripture to back this up. Um, if we looked in Luke chapter 18, verse 19, it says, uh, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And there are multiple psalms that, that proclaim this truth as well. If you didn't notice in Psalm 145 uh, that I had Tim read this morning, it said, God is good. But Psalm 100, verse 5, it says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Also, Psalm 106.1, Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And if we, if we think back to the creation narrative, um, when God looked at all he had made, Genesis 1.31, he said, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. But there are many who ask, what about when bad things happen? How can God be good then? Now some individuals, and some individuals unfortunately in evangelical churches, fall into the trap of dualism, which basically says that, that God is responsible for the good stuff, and then the devil's responsible for the bad stuff. Uh, these two forces are, are pitted against each other, and, 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 uh, and they're, they're working against each other for domination in the, of the universe. Now, this Star Wars-like belief system does not think that God is sovereign, at the end of the day is not biblical at all, and does little to give lasting hope. So then how does God's sovereignty and his goodness jive in the midst of bad times. God is sovereign, which mean he, means he has the right, the wisdom, and the power. And I, I drill that into my, my Sunday school kids. He's, he's, he's got the right, he has the wisdom, and the, and the power to accomplish all that he wills. He made the universe and everything in it, so it is all his. So he has the right to do with it what he wants. He is all wise, so he knows what is best. And he is all-powerful, 
so that he is not limited in any way from, from carrying out his plans. And he is also all good. So we can say without a beyond a shadow of a doubt that God will always accomplish his good plans. And that's what we learn from a very well-known, uh, often um, misinterpreted verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we see God working out his good plans over and over throughout the Bible. In fact, we could look at the Bible as a whole and say, well, this is God working out his good plan. Uh, but this morning, I would like to take a closer look at a very well-known story, the very well-known story of Joseph, to gain some insights on how God's goodness and his sovereignty come together for his glory and for the good of those involved, even during the hard times. Now, as Aaron mentioned, I, I, I've bitten off a ton of scripture. So if you think uh, you have to cancel your Father's Day barbecue because I'm going to go for three hours, that's not correct. My, my goal today is to look at this story as a whole, so we'll kind of take the 30,000-foot view, but every once in a while we've got to pull out our binoculars and kind of look at some detail along the way. So that is, that is how I'm uh, going to endeavor to attack this massive story. It is it's really a full quarter of the book of Genesis, which is actually rather fascinating because um, we have Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, and those are these, these, these monsters in Genesis. And they're, they're you know, the, the promise, the covenant is given to Abraham. And, and then Jacob, not Esau, is the son of promise. And then Isaac, no, sorry, I skipped one. Isaac, not Ishmael, is the son of promise. And we, we learn about Isaac. We, we learn about uh, Jacob, not Esau, who is the son of promise. And here we learn about Joseph. Now, he's not the, the line of, to Christ. That's, that's Judah. But um, it's, it's, it's really... There's, there's like the first part of Genesis is the, the, the plan, it's the promise, and then here it is an, a, a crystal clear observation or a, a case study in how God is going to, in one situation, go about accomplishing his plan, and that is through the story of Joseph. Now, as we, as we dropped in here to chapter 37, we immediately see conflict, don't we? This is a family full of conflict. Uh, Jacob, throughout his life, had much conflict, um, and he is, and I, we struggle with this when we decide to name our firstborn Jacob, because that means deceiver. Um, that's what Jacob was. Um, he, he, he had many conflicts with his own, his twin brother Esau, um, and then he had multiple wives, two of which were sisters, terrible idea, um, that caused much pain and turmoil in his family. And now we see, we start to meet Joseph, who is uh, one of Jacob's younger sons, who we see as a tattletale, is daddy's favorite, and he is um, then went on to say that he had dreams saying that his older brothers would one day, and actually his parents would one day, bow under his authority. His brothers didn't just dislike Joseph, they hated him. And when they had the opportunity, they wanted to kill him. Now instead of killing him, they did maybe what would have been potentially a worse thing, and sold him into slavery, and then lied to their father and, tell, and told him that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. And as the chapter ends, Joseph is a slave in Egypt to Potiphar, who we, we learn is an officer of Pharaoh. So, so far, we're not seeing a whole lot of good stuff, are we? We see favoritism, jealousy, hatred, 
dishonesty. And if we imagined ourselves in this situation with this kind of family, it would be hard to look around and see good, wouldn't it? Now, there are some that probably don't have to imagine too hard. Um, but it's, but it, it, we see a lot of turmoil, but we also see God actively at work. So if we jump over to chapter 39 in Genesis, we now follow Joseph as he begins his life in Egypt. Now at this point, we are t- we, we, he's probably 17 to 18 years old. He's a young man, but we see that God is with him. Let's read verses 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been brought to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for, for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and in field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So who do we see most prominently in these, in these verses? I would argue we see the Lord most prominently as he worked actively in Joseph's life. It was so obvious that even a pagan like Potiphar could see it. And God brought much blessing to Potiphar's house because of it. So so Potiphar basically just gives this young man control of everything, uh, which makes a ton of sense. If you see one of your employees or a slave that that everything they touch turns to gold, take take it all. Um, So everything seems like it's going great at this point, correct? Everything's aces. But as most of you know, the story takes a turn because Potiphar wasn't the only one that noticed how wonderful Joseph was. Potiphar's wife noticed too. And in verses 6 through 10, she attempts repeatedly to seduce him. Each time Joseph responded as he says in verse 9, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph was first and foremost concerned was staying pure before God. And when Potiphar's wife once again threw herself at him, he fled. He ran away, leaving behind his garment. She then, as you know, fabricates a story that Joseph, the Hebrew, had attempted to rape her and bring reproach on their household. And if we read in chapter 39, verse 19, it says, As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Some commentators think that Potiphar might have been one of Pharaoh's chief executioners. We don't know that for sure, but what we know for sure is that Potiphar must have been very high up in Pharaoh's court for Joseph to be put into basically the same place where the king's own prisoners went. Also, the fact that that Joseph was put in prison is somewhat curious. Um, You would think with an accusation of that magnitude 
that he would probably be put to death. But there is, there's a chance that Potiphar knew his wife, maybe he knew her well, and that her character was probably well known. So he didn't truly believe everything that she said, but the result is the same. Joseph is now unjustly accused and is in prison. We see once again here in verse 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Once again, we, we see God actively at work, don't we? And once again, we see an Egyptian seeing the evidence of God working through Joseph. Now, first, Joseph was enslaved and now he is in prison. Both of these were very unjust. I can't imagine either experience being at all pleasant, and I'm pretty sure they were very hard and very bad times for Joseph. But God was with him. He wasn't just with him during the good times. He was with him in the hard times as well. Also, these times were not a surprise to God. God was not asleep at the wheel. They were planned and orchestrated by him. And we don't see Joseph at any point wavering in his faith in God. So in two situations, uh, Joseph is asked to interpret dreams. In both situations, he says that only God can give interpretation of dreams. He was confident because he knew that God was still working. He knew that God was going to work through him in interpreting these dreams. He put his faith in God to help him in these situations. Well, the first situation uh, happened when the chief cupbearer and the chief baker both had troubling dreams the same night. And in the morning, they looked like they hadn't slept a wink, and they looked troubled, and Joseph said, what's wrong? And they relayed to him these dreams. Now, Joseph, with God's help, interpreted the chief cupbearer's dream that within three days, he would be restored to serving Pharaoh as his chief cupbearer. Now, Joseph also asked him, his one condition was, please remember me. Please remember me when you leave this prison. Now, since the interpretation of that dream was so positive, the chief baker said, do, do, do me next. The interpretation of that dream was that within three days he would be hanged. Now, both of these things took place exactly as God had given Joseph the interpretation for. But cupbearer forgot about Joseph. And we see that for two more years. Two years is a long time. I think sometimes we just kind of lose track of the eh, time would fly. I, I don't know. But for two more years he sits in prison because the cupbearer had forgotten him. Until Pharaoh had his own dreams that troubled him. All the magicians in the land of Egypt could not interpret them. And at this point the cupbearer finally remembers this Hebrew dude in prison. Chapter 41, verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that come up after them are seven years, and the seven ugly ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
There will come seven years of great plenty throughout, the, throughout the, all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the, to, in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the, that the thing is fixed by God, and God will surely bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine kind of seems like Joseph totally believes that God is sovereign, doesn't it? How many times during that, that chunk of verses did, did Joseph talk about the plan that God was going to do? Verse 28, God has revealed what he is about to do. Verse 32, the thing is fixed by God, and God will surely bring it about. Bring it about. Uh, another verse that talks very clearly about the sovereignty of God is Job 23, 13 which says, but he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. God has a plan. His plan is unchangeable. God's plan must and will succeed, and his plan includes all things that come to pass. Joseph did not doubt this for a moment. Joseph also laid out a plan of attack, and Pharaoh wisely appointed him to oversee all his kingdom in preparation for the coming Famine. I, I think that's kind of interesting how um, Joseph seems like a pretty good politician. He says, here's a problem, and here's how I would fix it. Well, he didn't say I, fi I would fix it. Here's how someone should fix it. And the Pharaoh said, yeah, let's have you fix it that way. Um, sorry, I lost my spot. And as he had done while managing Potiphar's house and the prison, Joseph succeeded with God's help in this task as well. He stored up mountains of grain, we're told later in the chapter, that uh, he couldn't even measure it anymore. And during the years of plenty, and as the famine hit, he sold it back to the people of Egypt and the people who came from all over the earth. Some of those people who came from all over the earth are ten of Joseph's brothers. Now at this point of this, the narrative, the, the, the scene shifts very temporarily back to the house of Jacob. Chapter 42 starts with, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go, do go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brothers, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of, of, of uh, Canaan. And then when they reached Egypt, the ten brothers came in front of Joseph and bowed themselves before him. I think we heard something about that uh, in a dream about 25 years before. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but his brothers have no idea who he is. And over the next few chapters uh, of this narrative, there is much interaction between Joseph and his brothers who 
they don't know who he is. Now we're not, there's a ton of detail there. There's a, there's a, a back and forth. There's brothers staying behind. Um, there is, there is, there's much that we could talk about, but we just don't have time to this morning. I encourage you to just read over that narrative. It's, it's really fascinating. But um, when we come to chapter 45, Joseph can't take it any longer. And it says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. No one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. That seems like a rather big understatement, doesn't it? Just, just imagine the shock that's very quickly followed by great fear that his brothers rightfully, um, that, that little path they went through. Here is the second most powerful man in Egypt who they have wronged greatly. And they would think this is the time for revenge. That's, that's what they did. They didn't like Joseph. He was daddy's favorite. He had a really cool coat. Um, and he had some big aspirations. Um, we got revenge. We, we did something bad to him. But that is not the end of the story that would be expected. Um, that is not the case. God was very good to Joseph in that he allowed Joseph to see a little part of his good, big plan. Now, this knowledge comforted Joseph in the hard times, and it gave Joseph the ability to have uh, a, re- a restored relationship with his family. Because we see in verse 4, he says to his brothers, Come near to me, please. That's not what you're going to say to someone you're going to, unless you're going to try to trick them, but that's not at all his, his heart. And as they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into, into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine that has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it is not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry up, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come not down to me, do not tarry. Now, this same thought is then said again by Joseph after the death of Jacob. His brothers thought that he was just being kind to them. He was not going to get his revenge while, while Jacob still lived. And then when Jacob dies in chapter 50, they think, we're, we're in for it. Now is his chance. Uh, if we start at verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us, and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now, just a little side note. Um, we don't have that recorded. So either they, they made that up, which would not be totally unimaginable, or that was something that Jacob actually said that we just don't have recorded. 
And now, so going back, it says, And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept, and when they spoke to him, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. God is good, and he is in complete control. He is sovereign over all the affairs of man. He uses everything to accomplish all his will, even the sinful actions of man. Here, Joseph's brothers had evil motive, didn't they? And it's interesting that in both situations, Joseph reminds them of that, right? Um, They hated Joseph and fully intended to do him harm. But as we have seen, God purposed to to, to use this very event to ultimately put Joseph into such a position of power that he would be able to save his family from famine. In each case, Joseph then turns the attention away from what they did to what God had planned and that his plan would not be thwarted. But they are still responsible, are they not? Uh, this, this same idea is, is very clearly spoken by Peter um, in, in, in the, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, speaking about the most unjust act in history, and that is Jesus dying on the cross. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you know yourselves, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Men are responsible for their actions, but God's plan will not be stopped. He uses all things to accomplish his purposes, and he is good. So why is it so important to know that God is good? In one of my favorite books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, um, Aslan, the lion, is a representation of Christ. And I just love the exchange between Susan and Mr. and, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver as they start telling the children about Aslan. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He isn't safe, but he's good. In my Sunday school class, I've talked with the kids about how God is incomprehensible, which means that he is more than we can fully understand. He is the almighty king of the universe. He is uh, eternal. He is infinite. He is sovereign. And we are small. We are weak. We are imperfect. We are finite. And if these are the only things that we know about God, it would be right and understandable to be shaking our boots scared, wouldn't it? But fortunately, that's not all the Bible tells us about 
this God of the universe. It tells us much more about God. He is patient. He is understanding. He is loving. And he is good. Now, we are not promised that we will be able to see the big picture that God uh, has for our, our lives. Joseph was able to, to have that discernment and see what God was up to. So sometimes when we are overcome by the challenges and trials of life, we must trust that God is good to help us with each and every step. Uh, a number of years ago, when Elian and I walked through the, the very dark time, the very dark days following the, the, stillborn, uh, the stillbirth of our daughter, um, I'll admit we sometimes doubted God's goodness. We, we thought there was, there was no way that God had anything good in that situation. But over time, through his word, through his people, through, uh, I was driving a lot of hours those days, and I would listen to sermons, and it was through God's providence, I started listening to a pastor out of Texas, Matt Chandler, and there was a big break in his sermons, and all of a sudden, he came back, and I then did some Googling, and he had a massive brain tumor, and he then for weeks on end poured out about how, God, how good God was and how God had a good plan in the midst of just a terrible time in his life. And those, those sermons, the word of God had such a huge impact in my life. And, and we then were reminded then over and over of God's goodness and that he, had, uh, he can be trusted in the hardest of times. And that's why we chose this, this quote to go on Molly's grave marker. It says, we cannot, Lord, thy purpose see, but all is well that's done by thee. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Um, also, there's the, uh, many, many of you know the story of Corey Ten Boom. Um, she and her, the, the Ten Boom family were Christians in Holland at the outset of World War II. And the Germans quickly took over the Netherlands, and, and when they did so, they quickly implemented their plan to eradicate the, the world of the Jews. And, and the Ten Boom family created a, a secret room and started to hide out Jewish people in that room. Now, they were at one point found out, and they were imprisoned. And, and Corey and her sister were, were separated in the same prison, and there was one day where there was, there was I guess, the, the, I don't know if they had a safety meeting for the guards, but they, they kind of left that, that cell block for a while, and, and her sister passed her a note that, that they weren't able, really ever able to do because the guards would stop it. You know what that note said? It said, God is good. Even in the hardest times, we can be assured, we can trust that God is good. If you don't have a relationship with God, I implore you to think deeply about these things and speak to someone today. There are many here who would love nothing more than to introduce you and tell you more about this good God. And if you're here today and you just are going through a, a tough spot, you're going through a, a season in life that is, you just don't see any good coming out of it, I implore you, I ask you, trust in God's goodness. He is, he is so, so good. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Joseph. And, and there is much detail that we did not get into today. But Lord, I pray that the, the 
the portions that we did read and we think about and, and speak about would encourage all the, those here to trust in you, trust in your goodness. You are sovereign. You are good. You know what's best for us, and Lord, I just pray that we would be um, comforted and emboldened to t- take each and every step because we know that we serve you. You alone are good. And Lord, I just pray that you would just uh, strengthen these people because of your word and your name. Amen. <coughs>